Well, like I said, we're actually coming to the last section in the book of Amos today. And as many of you well know, at least if you've been sitting here and hearing the teaching for some time through it, uh, nearly the entire book itself is actually dealing with the subject of judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, the basis of that judgment goes all the way back to the curses that are found in Deuteronomy 28. And those can basically just be summarized by saying that God promised this nation Israel that he would judge them and he would remove them from the promised land if they were unfaithful to the covenant, if they disobeyed the law, in other words. In a nutshell, that's what we've seen though, right? We've seen chapter after chapter of these people who are rebellious and wayward, and God is promising just that. He's going to remove them from the land. He's going to judge them. But as we get to the text today, at least the final five verses, it is nothing but explicit hope. It's actually a rather radically different part of the Bible, or not, I should say the Bible, but the book here, and so much so that many liberal scholars have just taken the saying it's an addition to the book. Well, it's not. It's consistent with the message of everything so far, but it's, it's unique to the book. It's very hopeful. It's very joyful. And the reason for this is that it, God is giving Israel these five different promises where he's going to restore them as a people. So he's promising all throughout the book, I'm going to judge you. But then he says, in spite of everything that's thus far happened, in spite of all of your rebellion, in spite of the judgment to come, I'm going to restore you. Now, you might not be aware of it, but this is actually a, an incredibly contentious passage, meaning many people are just fighting over the meaning of it. Some of you actually are aware of that. The reason for that, though, is that there are several different ways that people tend to approach this kind of a passage. And whether you all know it or not, you, we interpret the Bible. You all interpret the Bible in some different ways, and, and you make decisions based on how you're going to do so. Now, some of that might be based on how you were raised, how your parents taught you to understand these things, or whether or not you were part of a different church background. Some of that's going to be because of cultural influences that we have, right? We're all Americans, and so we think like Americans, and so we can obviously approach the text like Americans sometimes. However, many, or I should say the vast majority of the reasons that we approach the text in a certain way is because of some theological influence, meaning that there's some way that we understand the study of God and the study of his promises and his word that informs how we're going to read the Bible itself. Now, depending on how you understand you should actually read the Bible, you're going to take these kind of promises and, and either think of it as speaking literally to the nation of Israel, that is ethnic Israel, or you're going to take it in a figurative sense. It's going to be talking about the church in some way, shape, or form. Uh, perhaps you'll have said or even have heard things said that uh, these promises given to Israel are fulfilled in a spiritual sense in the church. Now, the point I'm making here is simply to say that we all have made certain decisions on how we're going to approach the text, and especially when we get down to the minor prophets, uh, those decisions are going to carry us down a particular road. That road is going to affect how you read major portions of the scriptures, not just the Old Testament, but parts of the New Testament as well. And so my point is simply to say that we've all made decisions. Those decisions are going to inform how we understand the text, and that's going to make a large difference, especially in the minor prophets, which I know some of you have already seen come across. Now, I'm going to be touching on some of these issues today, and I do mean touching. I, I just simply don't have the time to treat this exhaustively. But this sermon is going to be a bit more technical simply because of that, which means we're going to be going through the weeds a little bit here. 
It's going to be similar to some of the sermons you may have heard while Matt Henry was preaching through the kingdom of God. Um, if you haven't heard those, I'd recommend you go back and listen to them. But if you remember also, in the early days of the pandemic, when the Milwaukee campus was still shut down, they couldn't meet at the theater, we did some different lectures up here where we were just kind of sitting down, going back and forth, and one of those was on biblical hermeneutics, which simply means how you study the Bible. Now, it's going to be similar to that in regard, but I'm not going to get into the weeds again with all of that today just because it's very dry, and we still have to actually look at the text here. So what I would recommend, again, is if you haven't heard that series, go back and listen to it, uh, at least so you can appreciate where I'm going to be coming from today and where the church comes from. Now, because it's more technical, there's going to be many times where I'm going to be referring to other passages. Some of them I'm going to have you flip to. Some of them I'm just going to simply list. I'll make it very clear which ones to flip to. But all that to say... What I want to do is simply have you with a Bible open. I want you to be looking at the text as we're going through Amos 9, but also as we get to some of these other passages, to be looking down the whole time because I want to show you this is actually derived from the text. It's not just popping up out of thin air because I've got a hobby horse I want to beat. At the same time, I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. Now, what I mean by that is that this is an incredibly hope-filled passage. Again, it's It's inspiring hope to these people. And the reason for that is that Amos is showing that God is ultimately faithful to his promises, right? These guys are in the throes of judgment. They're going to see people that are beaten, raped, and killed, and the land destroyed in so many different ways that ultimately what he now leaves them with in his final words is five verses of explicit hope to the nation. Now, I think that's something that we can all appreciate in some sense, can we not? Now, I say that because if you look at our nation and the way that it's seemingly collapsing in front of our eyes, there's ways in which we can resonate with that. You know, we are essentially watching the collapse of the Roman Empire at this time, except with Wi-Fi and memes. But my point here is to say that we're watching wicked rulers do wicked things and force people to do things against their conscience, things that even five to ten years ago, none of us would have thought could even happen, at least in states. Many of you, like me, are simply wondering what all is coming down the pipeline with it. How is it going to look even in five years or 10 years or 15 years? But understand, in Amos's day, the Israelites have it much worse, right? They have it much, much worse. Again, they know that without a shadow of a doubt, people are coming into their land to brutally destroy it. And then they're going to cart whoever is a survivor off to be a slave, It's about as bleak as it can get. But again, in this last section, God actually gives them some means of hope. But it's in the midst of that exile, and it's in the midst of the promise to slavery. It's in the midst of the promise to many people dying. He is simply saying that, look, there are going to be terrible days ahead for you because of judgment, right? This is is all deserved because you broke the covenant. And yet at the same time, he is telling them there are better days to come. There are better days to come. Days that will be better than even when David was your king and the nation was united. Now think of that. They would have held on to these promises for dear life. Wouldn't, wouldn't you? You know, you're seeing everything that you know just being bled and dried out. And so it would not be a matter of intellectual debate for you. This would be something that sustains you. This would be something that comforts you. It would be your joy and your hope in the midst of incredibly dark and trying times. 
So with that all being said, uh, please take a look with me now at verse 11, and we're going to see the first promise that's given to Israel here. Again, that's Amos chapter 9, starting in verse 11. Now the prophet writes, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches, and I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now, immediately we see in verse 11, and and some of your Bibles even give the heading here, that it's speaking very clearly of this restoration of Israel. Now, again, how you understand the nature and the promise or the purpose of these promises, rather, is going to inform how you understand the meaning of that. If you're a covenantalist, and if you don't know that word, that's okay. All it's referring to is simply how you view the church and Israel, So if you are covenantal, if you believe Israel and the church are one and the same, you're going to believe that restoration already took place in some way, shape, or form. Now, the problem with this view, as we're going to see today here, is that there's this series of events that happens. But more importantly, the way that these things are described is that the only way you can get around them is if you spiritualize it or you you take away the plain meaning of the text here. You make it about the church instead of about Israel. Now, as we've seen thus far, all throughout nine chapters, this is a message to a given people at a given time. And remember, this was not a prophecy given to the church. Again, it's given to this wayward nation known as Israel, specifically the northern kingdom of Israel. And again, they're going to be judged harshly because they've been doing nothing but wickedness all throughout it. This is a prophecy, though, more particularly about rebuilding something that has fallen. Again, rebuilding something that has fallen. That's what he says right here. There's this fallen booth of David, and he's going to wall up its breaches. After he raises it up, he will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And so the question we have to be asking here is, what does he actually mean by this? Is he speaking about the church, or is he speaking to something different? Well, it could hardly be said that the church had fallen at this time, right? Israel would not have understood these to be figurative promises about Israel, they don't really speak to Israel. They would have understood these things to be speaking to their own people about this time. And so what he's referring to here is this fallen booth of David. He's speaking about the two kingdoms that have been bitterly divided ever ever since Solomon himself had died. And that's, in a nutshell, what he's speaking towards. He's talking about the restoration of this. Now, any who would have come after King David would have known these days to be, quote-unquote, the good old days, if you will. They would have longed for these days because David was a good king. He loved the Lord. But not only that, under his rule, the kingdom prospered in every single way. They were not ruled over by their enemies. He ruled with equity and fairness. The people enjoyed plentiful harvests. The tribes lived in harmony in the land that was given to them. The prophets and the priests were not corrupt. All of this was because you had a man that was convinced it was not only his duty as king to please God, but he actually thought it was his delight. He led these people in the same devotion to God, and Israel had never seen that before. Again, these would have been the good old days. More than this, though, is that every Hebrew would have known these promises that were given to David actually meant something. They knew that God had promised that David's throne would endure forever. Now, we find this all the way back in 2 Samuel 7, right? God promises to David that after he dies, he's going to raise up his offspring who will become king. He's talking about Solomon here. And this king will succeed him and rebuild the temple, or I should say build it for the first time. 
And then he promises that he's not going to take away his love for David's son, right? He says he's going to punish him when he does wrong, but he would not remove him from the kingship like he did King Saul. And the reason for that is very simple. God tells David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And so it begins as a promise about David's son, King Solomon, very quickly expands to a promise about this eternal kingdom that would never end. Now, this promise or this prophecy, if if you didn't know it, is echoed all throughout the Old Testament in many different ways. But it's also echoed in times of Israel's judgment and exile. Amos, of course, is speaking to it here, right? He speaks of this fallen booth of David. Jeremiah speaks of it in chapter 23. He just simply says, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And then again later, Jeremiah also says, Israel is going to be freed from the slavery of their oppressors, right? So this is after exile. He says that instead of serving these nations that they've been exiled to, they're going to instead serve the Lord their God. And he says specifically, they're going to serve it with David, their king, whom God will raise up with them. Now, at this point, the original King David has long been dead, right? You know, think of this. This is well after David has been on the throne. He's, he's been dead for ages at this point. Jeremiah is not speaking of him directly. Now, we know that he's referring back, though, to this covenant that he made with David, that this throne would endure forever. And so what this ultimately means, and we see this, again, throughout multiple instances of the Old Testament and even the New Testament, that this king who comes from the line of David would be no ordinary king. We know from Luke 1 that this one to sit on the throne of David is Jesus, Right away in Luke 1, in in verses 32 and 33, Luke writes, as a Gentile, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Again, we see this all throughout the Old Testament as well. Perhaps, though, the clearest reference, and, and we all know this one because we quote it at Christmas time every year, is found in Isaiah 9. He says, for unto us a child is born, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, and here's the part that gets really important, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so what is foretold of in Isaiah, what's made explicitly clear in Luke, is the same as what Amos is referring to here. He's talking about this fallen booth of David, again, that is these two divided kingdoms who will be reunited under the headship and lordship of Jesus Christ. This Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of David and he will rule with equity, justice, and righteousness This same Christ will be their defense and he will rebuild the land, but to a greater glory than they ever knew under King David, which is what we're going to see continuing in the text here. It must be said, though, that all this is done under the banner of David's throne. And what I mean by that is the restoration of Israel is inseparable from Christ. 
But the guarantee is not simply this spiritual reality in which he comes and frees them from their sins and establishes a spiritual kingdom, but there is this physical security. There is this physical kingdom. They will be reunited under this one king as one people. And remember, they actually want this, but this is a hope they have or have to have in the midst of exile, right? There's this physical reality taking place. And he says here that they will actually be raised back up. This fallen booth of David will be raised back up, but it's only after exile. They've not yet experienced the Assyrians coming in. No, they know that coming, but they've, they've not experienced that yet. Everything they witness from here on out is going to appear as if God has forsaken them. Everything they witness will appear as if God has not made good on his promise to Abraham. Everything will appear, beloved, as if God has not made good on his promises to David because they will have no king. The northern kingdom will never rise again. And then shortly thereafter, the southern kingdom will go into exile as well. He reminds them, though, that in the midst of all of this, God is still faithful. He reminds them, the promise to Abraham has not been rendered null and void. The promise to David has not been done away with. Rather, he says that I'm going to restore these two bitterly divided peoples into one people again. I will reestablish the Davidic throne And this is the first of the five promises he gives them here. But ultimately, he grounds this in Christ. Now, again, we know this throughout all the scriptures of Scripture speaking towards this reality. But he says that there is this one who will not only set all things right, but he will ensure the conditions that actually got them there in the first place will never happen again. That's the real beauty of it. Now, notice, though, this is done for a purpose. And it's much larger than simply bringing them back into the land, which we see in verse 12. Again, Amos writes that they, that is Israel, may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares Yahweh who does this. Now, Amos prophesies here that when this booth of David is restored, that is, the kingdom of Israel is reunited under Christ, Israel will have authority over all the nations of the earth. And they will ultimately be a source of blessing to them. Now, he mentions this land of Edom by name here, and he does that for a very specific reason. Now, if you don't know who the Edomites are or what Edom is, I preached a sermon on Obadiah, I think it's a couple years back now. But you can listen to that sermon because I deal exhaustively with that prophecy, or yeah, that prophecy there. Um, However, for our purposes today, what's important to know is that. The Israelites and the Edomites from day one have been a bitterly divided people. In other words, they're enemies. And many times in Scripture, they use this word Edom to stand as kind of a placeholder, if you will, that refers to the nations very broadly. So in a, what he's saying here is simply that Edom, that represents all of the earth who is an enemy to Israel, will be subdued. Now, the idea is that once Israel is reunited under the kingship of Christ, all of her enemies are going to be subdued. They will no longer pose a threat to the Abrahamic promises or the Davidic promises. They will no longer pose a threat to the extinction of a nation, nor will they pose a threat to any of the other promises they are given as a nation. But it's important to realize that this is only accomplished during the rule of Christ. And all that means is simply that certain conditions must take place before any of this can happen. 
Now, one of those conditions, of course, is that Christ must actually return. He must actually rule. The, the nation must be united. The other condition, though, which is what we see right after he talks about these people, Edom, being subdued, is that all the nations will call the Lord by his name. Or, I'm sorry, rather that these are the nations that will be called by his name. Now, this is foretold of, again, in Isaiah 11, and and we'll get there in a moment, so don't get there yet. But he's speaking of a time where all of the ends of the earth will know or have a full knowledge of the Lord. And specifically what that means is that they will know that he is God. They will submit to him as God. Now, this becomes important because God's purposes here to subdue the nations is not simply a matter of judging all the earth, right? It's not simply hellfire and brimstone. It speaks of salvation. That's one aspect of the covenants that God made with them, right? Their enemies will be subdued. They will go to war and all of Israel's enemies will be placed underfoot. And yet... All the nations will have a knowledge of the Lord and they will be called by the Lord's name. He's going to bring them into the covenant. They will not merely believe in him, but they will obey him. They will come to worship him. Now, part of that reality is going to take place at the end of all days, right? Sin, death, Satan will be no more. And yet part of that reality is what you and I are witnessing every single day in the here and now. Now, the reason I say that is because you and I are part of these Gentiles who have been brought into the covenant. We have been brought into the covenant. We are seeing this work already take place at this point in time. Now, this is also what the Apostle James refers to in Acts 15. So if you can, I want you to actually flip there with me now. I'm going to take you through the passage very briefly, but I want to do so because James actually quotes from Amos 9, 11, and 12 here. So if you can, keep your finger in Amos, flip with me to Acts 15, and we'll show you this. Now, there's a lot actually going on in the passage here. We're going to start basically at verse 5, but I'll give you just a very brief understanding of what's going on behind the scenes. So the book of Acts, obviously, as you've been hearing Matt preach through it, it's dealing with the conversion of many people who are coming into this new entity called the church, right? And what we're seeing so far is that there are massive quantities of Jews coming to the faith. But there's a transition that takes place where many Gentiles are actually starting to come to faith in Christ. And so these people, these believing Jews, have no idea what to do with all these Gentiles at the time. And so in verse 5, you can start to see where this problem arises, right? We have a group from the Pharisees, they're believers, meaning they actually confess Christ. And they say, because of all these Gentiles coming in, they say, well, hold up, we need to get them to obey the law. We need to get them to be circumcised. And so the rest of the elders and the apostles all meet in Jerusalem to try and figure this thing out. Now, in verses 7 and following, we have Peter, we have Barnabas, and we have Paul. And they're all speaking to the fact that God has demonstrated that he is saving Gentiles without them having any knowledge of the law and circumcision. So Peter just plainly tells them, he says, you and I, meaning you and I, all the Jews here, we were not saved by the law. We were not saved by circumcision, but rather by the gospel, by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so he basically just says, why are we going to make these guys try to obey the law? We couldn't even do it. And then in verse 13, which is where we see our quote from Amos 9, James gets up and he defends all of these people. He paraphrases a couple of passages from Isaiah as well. 
but he does so to affirm what Peter and Paul and Barnabas are all saying. Now again, everybody here would have been a Jew. They would have known the full context of what James is speaking about. They would have known Amos 9. And this becomes incredibly important because the full context of the passage is not simply dealing with Gentiles coming to the faith. James is arguing from quoting it that all of these people or all these Gentiles coming into the faith supports what Peter and Paul and Barnabas are saying, that they shouldn't be forced to obey the law. And so James is drawing out the fact that during this time when Gentiles are coming to faith in massive quantities, it's all a direct fulfillment of prophecy. Right? So look down at verse 16. This is where he says, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return... So this is where he's quoting Amos 9. And I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Thus says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. And so he's arguing from this very explicit passage that Israel, right? So back in Amos 9, Israel's going to be redeemed. Israel's going to be raised. They will rule over the earth because all of her enemies will be subdued. And yet Gentiles are going to come to the faith. He's saying there's no need for any of this to happen with these Gentiles now. They don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to follow the law. And the reason for this is quite simple. They are already inheriting part of the blessings that were promised to Israel, which are found in Christ. Right? So these guys are saying, hey, look, the, the Spirit has come upon them. We are witnessing all of these miraculous phenomena happen. And so what that means is the Spirit is residing within the Gentiles. We know the promises of the Old Testament with the Spirit where he's going to come and he's going to give us a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. He's going to give the Spirit of God to reside in us that we might actually walk in his commandments and obey him, something that we could never do before under the power of the law. They would also know things like Deuteronomy 30, which speaks of the Gentiles given a circumcised heart, the same as the Jews. Now, these things would be something the law and circumcision were powerless to do. And it's only because God is actually at work here. And so in all of it, James is appealing to Amos 9, right? He's saying all of these things because these are things the Israelites would have known quite well that the Lord accomplishes this work and that all of these things are part and parcel to the fulfillment of the restoration of Israel. So he's basically saying, look, in light of eternity, what's happening, we have no need to make these Gentiles obey the law because we can't even obey the law. We're not even supposed to do this anymore. Now, maybe they would not have understood the full implications back in Amos' day. Maybe the prophet himself would not have understood the full implications of all this in light of Christ. And the reason for that, again, is simply that these are the things that they longed to look into. These are the mysteries now finally being revealed in full to the Jews. Now, nonetheless, though, this is still a word of profound hope to these Israelites. And the reason for that is because they knew that God was explicitly speaking of this time when not only would the nation be restored, but salvation would go to the ends of the earth. That the curse all the way back in Genesis 3 would be starting to be lifted. You have to remember, these are people on the verge of judgment. The northern kingdom is going to be destroyed. 
They're going to witness loved ones and countrymen be killed and others taken to be slaves. They would lose the promised land. They would lose all of these different things. And yet the promise would be that God is still at work to fulfill his promises to you. Now, imagine for a moment that this was something about America. Now, it's not, so that's not what this text is saying, but just imagine for a moment. Some foreign ruler is going to come into the States. He's going to destroy the land and the country you love. Everybody is going to be under judgment. Now, you're one of the lucky ones. Your family wasn't killed. Right? Some of you survive. Actually, all of your family survives, but they take everyone into slavery. Your son's made a eunuch. Your daughter is made a concubine to the king. And in the midst of that, you see some other members of Missio, but they weren't so lucky. Only some of their family members made it out alive. But all of you share this same thing in common. You are powerless to do anything to escape your predicament powerless. You will be a slave. Your children will be slaves. You will witness other things continue to come up that poses a threat to your extinction and of your people. And yet, you remember, God made a promise. Before all of this happened, the Lord gave you a promise that even in spite of all of what you're seeing, that he would restore you as a people. Now, Israel is in the midst of this position of complete weakness. They can't do anything. They they have to rely on God. They don't have a choice at this point. They cannot free herself from her captors. They will not overtake these nations by military force. They will not gain their freedom and restoration by diplomacy. None of that could happen. And in fact, they know that it is only Yahweh who can do this work. It is only Yahweh who can restore them. And yet the beautiful thing is that they know in the midst of this, this is all judgment, right? They've all deserved it, but they know in the midst of it that the Lord promises to restore them. Can you not see how beautiful that is? Can you not see how much like the gospel that is? How hopeful that is? You have nine straight chapters of judgment, right? Each and every one of these chapters is just beating them to death, saying you are going to be judged as a result of your sin. The nation, the northern kingdom will be destroyed. And yet he still looks at them and says, these are my people and I am going to be faithful to my promises. I will restore you in spite of everything. I will be your savior once again. I'm going to set all things right. I'll be faithful to my promise to Abraham and to David. And I do mean every one of those promises. Now think of the implications of that again for you. Again, think of it in light of everything in our country. Some of you are so twisted up by everything that's happening right now, right? That you're making major life decisions on things you just can't know. Not that you don't know, but things you just can't know. Would you not just rest in the fact that God is faithful? That he has promised to take care of you? That he has promised to not lose one? Do you believe, I mean, genuinely believe that God cares for each and every one of you in Christ more than the sparrows of the air and the lilies of the fields? Do you believe that? Well, when you're in a position like the Israelites here, you don't have a choice in the matter, 
right? You can reject it or you can accept it, but you don't have a choice in, in how any of that's going to play out. Because of the, the matter of fact is that the only comfort you have is not going to be found in things like aromatherapy. It's not going to be in your plans, your safety, your earthly possessions, none of that. The only hope and comfort you have to draw from in all of creation is the promise that God has given you. And beloved, in the end, those are the only things that actually really matter. They were stripped of everything. And it wasn't going to get any better for them. We know that, right? But they had hope in what God promised to do for them after these days of exile. They looked forward to the day when all would be set right, that their enemies would be subdued. And yet, that while judgment was happening, that God would be pleased to make some of their enemies their friends and co-heirs and co-rulers. That God made a promise to make a possession of all the ends of the earth because it belongs to him. Only God can do that. Now that's the second of five promises given to Israel here. Right? The first was the promise that he would restore the Davidic throne, the Davidic dynasty. He's going to reunite the people under Christ. The second is that God possesses all the nations. He possesses all the nations. And the third is an overabundance in the land, which we now see in verse 13. So if you haven't flipped back, go ahead and flip back to Amos 9. We're going to look at verse 13. The prophet writes, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. When the mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Now that's a remarkable contrast to what we've seen so far in the book, isn't it? Now earlier, God's promised complete destruction on all the major cities. He's promised to basically burn up their fields and destroy their vineyards. Everything's going to dry up. Even if there's produce left over from after the Assyrians, they won't be able to eat it because it's just going to go to waste. Their livestock, their sons, their daughters, everything And yet now we find that the land is in such abundance that the people can't even keep up with what's being produced. Verse 13 tells us there is this plowman who will overtake the reaper. The treader of grapes will overtake the one who sows a seed. Now, if you know anything about farming, you have a season, obviously, in which you plant produce, and then you have a season, obviously, in which you reap the harvest. You take everything in. For Israel, they would have plowed their fields in October, and then they would have finished the harvest by May. But what's being shown here is that there is such an abundance that they overlap. The people can't keep up with everything happening. The plows or the plowmen come and the harvesters are still at work because the vines just continually produce. Now, just imagine that for a second. Everybody's still hard at work. They're bumping into each other. And the one who was plowing just basically looks at them and he's like, hey, dude, you got to get out of the field because I need to plant next year's crops. And he just looks at him and he goes, where are you going to put it? None of the plants have died. They're still growing. They're still producing fruit. Everything is in abundance. Now, if you have your own garden, you know this, right? You can't go from season to season and continually take fruit, can you? It just doesn't happen. It just doesn't work like that. Even in all the technology and everything we have in our culture, we just, we don't have the means to produce that much, We've got all sorts of different things we can to yield an incredibly large harvest, but this is talking about a time where there's so much that they don't need to even plant seeds anymore. 
And then if you look down, you see the same thing is happening in the vineyards. There's an abundance of grapes, so much so that the treaders, the guys who are pressing all the wine with their feet, they can't even keep up with those who sow the seeds. Again, catch the description in verse 13. There's so much wine, so much sweet wine, that the mountains are just dripping with it. And then the hills are actually dissolving because of how much is happening. Uh, There's some really neat imagery going on here, but I want to just explain it to you really quickly. The word that's being used here that speaks of the hills dissolving is the same word that's used in the Minor Prophets elsewhere that speaks of God coming and the earth melting. Right, So Nahum, Micah, they, these guys all use the same word. They describe Yahweh coming down in person. There's peals of lightning. There's thunder. There's massive earthquakes. The, the earth just simply bursts at the seams and it melts under his glory. Well, he says there's so much wine here that that's going to be the same result. There are rivers flowing from top to bottom, and all it does is eventually just erode them to nothing. And so what you're seeing transpire here is literally the reversal of everything that's happened so far, but in such a way that it's not merely them coming back to the land. Now, think of it. In a a nutshell, God has said for nine straight chapters, look at how bad things are going and are going to get as a result of your sin. But now he looks at his people and he says, look at how good things will be. Look at what I am doing What this describes then is a third promise that's given for the restoration. The Davidic kingdom's been restored. The people are united under Christ. The nations are subdued, meaning all of her enemies are put underfoot. And yet there are others who have been brought into the glorious gospel of grace who submit to Christ and are co-heirs and co-rulers. And Christ reigns in his earthly kingdom. And in the midst of this time, there is this newfound prosperity. Throughout all the ends of the earth, there is peace, there is abundance, and it characterizes everything. But again, all of this only happens after judgment. They must first see the fig trees cut down, their fields burned, their vineyards dry up. They must see whatever goods they have go into the hands of their captors. They must see their sons and daughters, and many of themselves, be brought into exile and be made slaves. They must see these nations continue to oppress them and never submit themselves to God. And so in the midst of that, they must wait for this one who will come to set all these things right. They must wait for their Savior. And even now, in in that sense, we are waiting for his return when these things are finally subdued and set right, are we not? But all of it is purposed for the Israelites in Amos' day and even for us today that we would look upon the promises of God with faith. And so, beloved, in a very real sense, we could look at these things happening in the text and we can easily apply it to ourselves simply because, again, we are part of the Gentiles that he has brought into the covenant. But we see that there are things that must happen still, even in the midst of the days of darkness. Right? No matter how difficult your days might be, No matter how much you battle with sin in the here and now, how much you see its destruction around you, how much you see that great adversary we all know so well, Satan, no matter how much you see him wreak havoc in the world, no matter how many loved ones you bury into the ground, God has promised there are far, far better days ahead. 
He's promised that there is a finish line he will carry us to, that we are to persevere to, to the end, where we will reap rewards far greater than we can ever imagine. We will inherit every blessing in Christ for all eternity, and beloved, part and parcel to that is a renewed creation. A renewed creation. Everything you and I know is just broken. And that will be the case for all eternity, that renewed creation. Beloved, no dark days can steal that from you. And yet we have tension, do we not? I mean, every industry we work in, all the days of our lives are filled with this tension, this brokenness, despair. We see some of the promises have come, right? We are living in the age of the church. We have seen that Christ has come. But we are looking for many others that appear far off. But beloved, even now God is working all of these things to this end. The days are coming, far better days, And in those days, God promises even to restore the captivity of Israel. Verse 14. He talks about how the Israelites are going to be restored into the promised land. They're going to rebuild the ruined cities and once again enjoy the, the fruit of their labors in the land. And once again, we just see that this is a reversal of this judgment being poured out on them for their unfaithfulness. Again, they were disobedient to the covenant. They brought all of this upon themselves. But now he says that they will experience conditions of peace and productivity in the land forevermore. Now, such conditions could only happen in times of peace, and we know this from history, and more importantly, the trajectory of the scriptures, right? The storyline of the Bible that Israel as a nation has continued in her rebellion. So as a result, they have not been restored. But there are other things at work too, like the fullness of the Gentiles must come in. But this promise of restoration is here, and so we have to be able to do something with it. Now, I contend the only way we can actually do so, at least that's faithful to the text, is understand that God has given them a literal promise. It's therefore a literal hope. Now, the reason, again, is simple, and that's because of everything else that we've seen in the passage so far. Now, many, again, want to take this and make it about the time shortly after the exile, that they come back in when King Cyrus issues a decree. They could return to the land and rebuild the wall. They also look at the rebuilding of the temple as part of this as well. And you can see those things in Ezra and Nehemiah. But the problem with this is that we simply don't see any of the things that have characterized our passage so far during that time. And none of the things they're after either. The nation was certainly not united. Now, even if you want to say that during this time they were united in some way, The minor prophets on the scene during this time show a very different picture. The nations of the world, even at this time and even now, are still bitterly hostile towards Israel. Again, Christ had not even come. And so what do you do with that, right? There was never a point where the land yielded itself in such a way. Now, you can argue all of this is exaggerated or fulfilled in some spiritual sense later, but it really doesn't do justice to the text. Now, the problem with this all is that this is all removing any kind of significance to what this would have been given to Israel. They are going to lose everything, and yet they have a promise in the midst of all of that that one day God will redeem them and restore them. There's no Jew in this time period who would have seen these things as only a spiritual reality. 
they would have understood these to be real promises concerning a real particular people during a real time. And all that would have been understood in light of the promises given to Abraham, which he would have understood in a real sense. Right? God, back in Genesis 13, says to Abraham himself, this is, again, long before the nation has even come into being, that his people and his descendants would inhabit the land forever. That's part of that promise. Do you think Abraham would have understood that to be figurative or literal? But the bigger problem is that when we do these kinds of things, we take away someone's ability to just read the text for what it is. Now, it it conveys this idea that you have to be able to understand things in light of the spiritual sense, right? You have to have this theological system under your belt before you can approach the text and read it and understand it. Every time somebody taught under this will come to the text, though, what they're being taught is that the the text is being placed under the grid of their theological system rather than the other way around. And what I mean by that simply is that what's being taught is that this theology is more important than what the text is saying at face value. We should be doing the opposite. And what I want to do is just briefly give you a very practical example that goes much in line with what we're seeing thus far in Amos. So if you would flip with me to Isaiah 11. I referenced it earlier, but I'm going to bring you through it just very, very briefly. Again, a very high-level view because it confirms everything we're seeing thus far, but it also gives greater detail to it. Again, in Isaiah 11, notice the first few verses. I'm just going to summarize some of these before I I stop and have you look at particular verses. But Isaiah speaks of this one who is to come from the stem of Jesse. We know this to be Christ. Now, the reason we know this is because it speaks of the Spirit resting on him in a very unique way. Right? He upholds wisdom and understanding. He upholds counsel and strength, knowledge and a fear of the Lord. And all of his judgments are made with righteousness from on high. And then in verses 4 through 5, right, it says, He will judge the poor with righteousness. He will judge the afflicted with fairness. He will judge the wicked. Righteousness and faithfulness, again, characterize everything that he does, every aspect of his rule. But then at the same time, and this is where things get really interesting, in verses 6 through 10, at the same time all of this is taking place, there is peace in the earth as a result of this worldwide knowledge of the Lord. We see known predators living in harmony with their prey. We see children unafraid of these venomous snakes. They simply play in the dens of a cobra. And the simple reason for this is that there is no real fear of death. We're starting to see some of those curses from Genesis 3 lifted. However, we still see some of them at play. We see that poverty and affliction and wicked people are still present. We see that children are coming into the world, and yet at the same time there's no fear of death in in any of this. And the reason for this is, again, back to 9 and 10. The earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord, and the nations actually submit themselves to him. Even the animal kingdom no longer wars against itself. And then in verses 11 and 12, we start to get a glimpse furthermore of what Amos is speaking of here. He writes, Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain And that's important when we get back to Amos. These are people who will remain from where? 
from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathras, from Cush, Elam, Shinar, and Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he, speaking of Christ again, will lift up a standard or a banner for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel, and he will give the dispersed of Judah, or he will gather, I'm sorry, he will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. I'm not going to read the rest of the context in 11 and 12, but it continues to go on and speak of this people being reunited. We've already seen that in Amos, haven't we? It's all part of the same timeline of events that's happening. It's all part of this restoration of the people of Israel. Right? There's this first promise given in verse 11. There is this one who would come. There's this one who is going to reign on the Davidic throne. He's going to restore the people, bring unity, not just for Israel, but the whole earth in one sense. Right? There's a second promise in verse 12, and this is where we see that fleshed out. The nations are subdued, meaning the enemies are put under the foot of Christ. And yet there are many nations who were enemies that were made into co-heirs and co-rulers. But it also speaks of the third promise. There is this unparalleled peace. There is this prosperity in a sense all throughout the land because of the reign of Christ. All of these things are then setting into motion this regathering of Israel across the globe. And that's when we start to see the fifth and the final promise of God come out. And that's what we see again back in Amos 9, 15. So we'll return there and simply finish things out here. The prophet again writes, I will also plant them on their land. And again, here's where it again coincides with what we just saw. And they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. These are the final words he gives these people. I will not again uproot you from the land. I will not again uproot you from the land. He's not simply going to regather them after exile, but he's going to plant them in such a way that when that happens, it will never be taken out of the land again. Now, again, for that reason and for what, everything else that we've seen, this is not speaking of some time when they come back to the land in a temporary sense. It's a permanent thing. The substance of the gospel in the midst of that doesn't change, though. Right? We saw that they have to be united under the banner of Christ. And this is all consistent with what Amos has been saying all throughout his book here. You remember, there's at least two explicit times where he says that there is this day coming, this day of the Lord, and when that day comes, for these people, it will not be favorable. Right? He says that you must repent, you must believe, you must forsake idolatry. But if you do not, that day will come and it will not be good for you. Again, in the midst of everything going on, this is a profound message of hope to the people. It's a message calling them to repentance and faith. All of these things must happen before Israel is restored, right? Christ must come. They must confess him as Lord and Savior. The enemies of God must be judged. The fullness of the Gentiles must come in. Christ must then return again for a second time. And then the earth will be an experience in which has never happened. But then once these things happen, then Israel is going to be drawn from all four corners of the globe and restored and planted into the land and never to be uprooted again. What he's saying here is that the promises that you view in threat right now to Abraham and to David will finally be fully fulfilled. 
Again, this is coming to them in the midst of impending doom. None of these promises revoke the fact that they're going to be judged. The Assyrians are still going to come in. They're still going to destroy the northern kingdom. And then the Babylonians will still come in after them and destroy the southern kingdom. They're all going to go into exile. Many Israelites are going to be brutally killed during this time. If they weren't killed, they're going to suffer in profound ways still. They're going to be slaves. They're going to see children die. They're going to see starvation. And all of this happen on a massive scale. And all of it's a result of sin. In a very real sense, they're going to be forced to accept one of two realities. Right? They can double down. They can fail to repent. And then they ultimately face the judgment of God. And on the day when all of this happens... They will not enter into his rest. It will not be a favorable thing for them. Or they can repent in faith and face the promise of God's restoration that ultimately God is working to bring all things in harmony under the banner of Christ to restore them and to redeem them. And on that day, it will be favorable for them. These twin promises of judgment and salvation are always intermingled in a sense throughout the Old Testament. And we've seen this obviously throughout the New Testament as well. But we also see it as part and parcel to our daily lives in some sense, do we not? You know, we see these things from Genesis to Revelation, but we've also seen it within global history from start to beginning, or I'm sorry, start to end. From the day sin entered into the world through Adam until the day Christ returns and throws all of our enemies into the lake of fire forever, we will witness these two twin promises of judgment and salvation play out. But these things are working towards one end. One end. God is bringing in his kingdom bit by bit, day by day. He's faithfully working every single thing to fulfill all of his promises. Remember in the beginning I said, I don't want you to lose the forest for the trees. And this is where I'm bringing it back to that because this is a message of hope. Everything we are seeing and hearing today is going towards this reality that God is faithful. He is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to Abraham. He is faithful to Israel. He is faithful to the church. And beloved, he is faithful to you and me. The reason why he is faithful is because he is faithful to himself. God does not revoke his promises. The goal of all this is not to get bogged down into some sort of timeline where you're just searching every newspaper to see when and where these things will happen because, beloved, you just won't figure that out. The goal is that you and I would see how our God is faithful from Genesis to Revelation. That was the goal for all the Israelites. God is faithful, right? He's, he's faithful to judge, but he's also faithful to save. But it's not simply that we would know he is faithful, but that we would truly believe that reality. Now again, put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite. Now parents, you know this verse because your children have all said it in Sunday school. I know this verse because I've had to go through three kids with it, but pretend for a moment we're in exile. Just bear with me. You're in a strange land. You have nothing. You're working in the fields. Your children are slaves as well. Everything that you have known and loved for years has gone away. And in the dirt, you hear your child say, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. 
Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Now we hear those words in the midst of a very prosperous time. And it means something very different to us, doesn't it? But in the midst when everything has been stripped away, when life as you know it has gone, that hits really close to home, doesn't it? That gives a beautiful reminder of the fact that God is faithful. Because you're not looking at it and trying to twist it in some perverted sense to be speaking about how God is going to enrich you, how he's going to give you your great life now and all these different things we hear all the time. Ultimately, you're looking at it in times of despair, where you are powerless, you are penniless, you are in exile, and you are saying that God is faithful. Now, every single day, we are beneficiaries of these types of promises, right? Way back when, God made a promise to a man named Abraham, and since that day, he has been utterly faithful to that promise. We have been grafted in, we have been made co-heirs to the covenant through Christ, Everything is hastening towards this day, though, this final day when every promise of God will culminate in judgment and salvation once again through the second coming of Christ. He's going to return, he's going to judge all the earth, and yet he does so much more than simply judge the earth, doesn't he? Everything will be restored, everything will be renewed. The pain, the brokenness, the death, all of that will be done. We will be united as one people, as Jew and Gentile, in this heavenly kingdom forever. And we will always sing of his praises and his great faithfulness. Beloved, there are far, far better days coming ahead. We have the same hope of Israel. We have a hope in Christ who has come, who will come again, and who will set all things right. And he will unite all peoples under the banner of the gospel to eternal salvation. We will sing of his great faithfulness for what he has done for us in Christ forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reality that in spite of our sin, that you have made a way for us to be saved in Christ, that we can come to you as sinners deserving of judgment, as sinners deserving of wrath, and be found safe in you. We thank you that you have been faithful to all of your promises, that from the beginning to the end, you will continue to be faithful, that we can have confidence in our salvation, knowing that you have not forsaken your promises. We thank you that even in the midst of this day where we see everything's broken, that there is a day coming that is far off in which all things will be redeemed, that all things will be brought and made new. We've only given thanks for these things simply because you have brought us into the covenant. Father, though your plan was one from the beginning, we thank you that we are beneficiaries of that. I pray that we would not shrink back from giving the gospel so that the fullness of the Gentiles would come in, that we might see these things happen and Christ would return. We would no longer sin and suffer and face death. But we pray that even in the midst of all that now, that we can rejoice in what you are doing and what you will do, knowing that death has lost its sting. Pray now that you would be with your people as they go about this week, that you would keep these things in their minds and hearts, that they might reflect upon your goodness and your faithfulness. 
that we would not lose the forest for the trees. We would give praise to a God who is faithful in all things. We pray these in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.